turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 this morning. Uh, as many of you know, I, I moved as a teenager from upstate New York to uh, Texas. And when I came down here, I experienced uh, culture shock in uh, a couple different areas. One of, one of the areas that was um, a, a little bit different for me was uh, the accent, right? So, southern accent, I really had to, had to adjust to because if you've grown up in the South your whole life, um, you don't actually know that you have an accent. And so, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just part of who you are and what you've experienced. And you also may not know that people who are in the Northeast uh, have some prejudices, toward those who are in the South. And so if you're raised in the Northeast and you hear uh, a Southern accent, kind of things slow down and there's this drawl, you immediately think to yourself, uneducated, right? And I know it's not true, but I'm just telling you that's the perception. And then you get down here and you realize that, that y'all is actually a really efficient contraction of you and all. And actually you can make it a double contraction, y'alls, that it's all of ours together. And that's a really efficient thing to do. But you have to adjust to those things, right? So before I moved down here, um, I, I, there were things culturally that I didn't know what to expect. But then there were some things that I thought, you know, this would be great. I'm, I'm glad I'm moving to Texas because I, I thought, well, everyone in Texas is a cowboy, so I'll get to be a cowboy. And I want to be a cowboy. This will be great. My parents will buy a ranch, and I'll, I'll live on the ranch, and I'll, I will have a horse, and I will ride my horse to high school. And then, you know, I pull up to a Consolidated and realize there's no stable, and I don't get to have a horse. Um, you know, and so no horse, and I never adjusted completely to the accent. And I confess I've not fully embraced country music. But there are things about the culture uh, that, that I did like. And then there were co- things about the culture that were really hard for me. And really challenging for me. One of those was, was the racism that I saw. Now, I'm aware of the fact that there is racism uh, where I grew up in upstate New York. But it wasn't really a part of, of my particular world. Right? My parents had friends from uh, all over the world. And they were in our home and we were in their home. And that was really common. And, you know, in my town, there, were, there weren't a lot of African-American students, but in my neighborhood, there were several. And so every day, I went down the street and played with uh, my black friend, Rusty Curry. And if Rusty wasn't around, then I went up the hill and I played with Kevin Mitchell, who was also a black friend. And if Rusty and Kevin weren't around, then I went and played with Pedro Guzman, and he was Puerto Rican. Or I'd go play directly across the street with Josh Gittleman, he was Jewish. Or I'd play with... Johnny Lambro, who was Greek, or I'd play with Mike Longo, who was Italian, right? That was kind of, that was my world. And so I know in a sense that racism was there, but I didn't really feel it. I didn't experience it so much. And then I came down to Texas, and I developed two kind of separate groups of friends. There were uh, my white friends, and then I started playing basketball, and I had my black friends. And I remember one day I went into the lunchroom, and I grabbed my lunch, and I sat down with uh, my black friends that I knew from the basketball team, and all conversation stopped. It just went silent. And they just looked at me. And one of the guys said, he goes, uh, what are you doing here, Holmes? I said, well, I'm not sure what the word Holmes means. <laughs> he goes, homeboy. I go, that doesn't help me either. What's, what's a homeboy? I don't, I don't know that word or that term. I'm not from around here. Right? I mean, it just, he goes, well, it just means friend. It's like friend. I go, well, I'm just having lunch with you guys. And he goes, mm, I don't think that's really such a good idea. Then I looked around and I realized I was the only white kid sitting on the black side of the cafeteria. And my black friends weren't really comfortable with that. And my white friends weren't really comfortable with that. 
And I remember walking down the hallway, and I would hear white kids telling jokes using the N-word. And I was like, whoa. We just didn't use that word ever. Like, that was just, you just don't, you don't use that word at all. And it kind of began to open up my eyes. And what I began to realize is, actually, uh, racism is everywhere. It's not just in the South or in the North, and it's not just black and white. It's, it is everywhere in the world. Right? In North Bryan, the Mexican gangs hate the Guatemalan gangs. And if you're not Hispanic, you think of Hispanics as this monolithic cultural idea, but it's not. There's incredible diversity among Hispanic cultures, and they don't all like each other, and they're not all kind to one another. You know, or if, if you're, you're not Asian, you think of Asian culture as, as one thing. It's a monolithic thing. But, you know, there's racism among Asian cultures. It's an incredibly wide variety of billions of people. And Chinese and Japanese and Koreans and Vietnam, Vietnamese don't always love one another and get along. Or, you know, if you're not African, you think of Africa as one people. But remember, men and women, that's a continent. That's a continent, And the diversity of language and culture and race is vast, and they don't always get along with one another. In fact, tribal warfare erupts, and hundreds of thousands have been murdered and millions have been displaced. If you're not from India, you think of India. It's just one culture. It's not. It's it's, it's, it's a subcontinent. and, And if you go from the south to the north, you find an incredible variety of culture and language and even appearance And they don't always love one another or like one another. There are incredible prejudices amongst different cultures, even within India. So, you know, people, it's 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 everywhere. It's not just an American problem or a southern problem or a white black problem. It's everywhere. And you know, actually, the problem isn't just race. There are, in a sense, other tribes that we belong to that we allow or use to divide us, right? There are uh, economic tribes. You can be wealthy or middle class or poor. And if you're poor, you look at the wealthy and you say, these people are snobs and they're uncaring, they're unkind, they're selfish, they don't think about anyone else. And if you're wealthy, you look down at the poor and you say, well, they're, they're just lazy and they need to get jobs. And if you're middle class, like most of us in here, then we can look down on both the groups, right? <laughs> We're in a wonderful position. Right? We have economic tribes that we align with sometimes. There are political tribes. If you're a Republican, you look at Democrats and you go, man, these people are just, they're just naive, bleeding heart snowflakes, and they need to toughen up, right? And if you're a Democrat, you look at Republicans, you go, uncaring, unkind. You know, not paying attention to the needs of others. We've got political tribes. And we have generational tribes. And if you're old, you look down at the young and you say, well, these young people, they're, they're disrespectful and they're entitled. They're not thinking of others. They're not, they're not really... Uh, really listening to the wisdom of those who are older. And uh, if you're young, say, well, look at the older people. They're irrelevant and disconnected. They don't really know what's going on in a culture. So my hope is that at this point in time, I've actually have offended each of you in some way, right? That's kind of how you want to start a message, draw everyone in to this, this moment. My point is this. We, we have these tribes. We look for these associations these things that we possess that others don't possess that give us a right to uh, look down upon others and say, I'm, I'm better than you. This is you. This is, this is me. It's everywhere and it's always existed from the dawn of human history. It's existed. You go back to the garden. Go back to the garden. 
Adam and Eve, they, they took the apple, they ate the apple, and what was the first thing that happened to them? They went... They felt vulnerable. They felt afraid. Someone now has power over me, and I must protect myself. Fear, right? Fear entered into human experience. Fear and pride is what drives the separation. Remember Adam and Eve, they, they had two sons, and we, we go, with these two sons, we go from eating an apple to murder. Cain murders Abel. Why? Well, he was jealous of his, his brother, and, and there was pride and arrogance and envy. Pride and fear, these are the things that drive the divisions among us. Listen just one chapter later, Genesis chapter 4. This is a man named Lamech, and he says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. What is that? Oh, that's, that's hatred and arrogance and pride, probably fueled by fear. And it's, it's always existed. Paul wrote to Titus, he said, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Division, Paul says, that's that's the norm. Harmony and unity is the exception. And it was certainly the case in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a divided city. It was a predominantly Gentile city, but with a, a really a, a large Jewish population. And remember, in, in the Jewish mindset, there were the Jews, that's us, and then everybody else. Right? To be Gentile, if you read your Bible and you see the word Gentile, that means everyone who's not a Jew. And that's the Jewish mindset. There's us, and then there's everybody else. And the Jews had disdain and hatred and fear of everybody else who was not a part of their community. You know, in a sense, you can, you can understand that because they had always, almost their entire history, lived under oppression, right? They came out from slavery in Egypt, and then they were attacked by the Malak- Amalekites, and they were attacked by the Philistines, and they were attacked by the Midianites, and then later they were uh, overrun by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and now the Romans are just the latest. And in fact, you know, at right around the time that Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, there was an uprising in Israel, in Palestine, trying to throw off Roman rule. And so the Roman emperor sent in his number one general, Titus. And Titus came in, and it was between 66 and 73 uh, AD. But in 70 AD, he, he, he crushed the population. He marched into Jerusalem. He destroyed the city. And he tore down their entire temple. Never to be rebuilt again to this point in time. The Jews, the Jews hated the Gentiles. They especially hated the Romans. So listen to what uh, one rabbi said. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he said, the best of the Gentiles should be killed. And so now we have this, this new movement. It's called the church. And the expectation is that Jews and non-Jews, Romans included, will come together and live together in harmony. That was hard to do. There was a lot of friction in the early church. In fact, as you read the New Testament, you'll notice that it's one of the most uh, important themes. We are one. How do we live together now as one? It's still a dominant theme that the church has to address. Because we are disunified for lots of different reasons. But we're supposed to be one. And I would argue this. That the primary way that the world knows us is based upon our unity or our lack of unity. 
Right? That's what defines us in the world's eyes. That's why Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So when he left, he said, oh, Father, please do this for them. Would you please make them one? Make them one as we are one. Make them one as Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed relationship for all of eternity. Would you make them one so that the world may know that you sent me? Right? So that they would be beautiful in their unification. And that their beauty would, would just shine as, as light in a dark, dark world. Father, make them one. That's, that's the calling upon the church. Now, how do we get there? How do we move to that place? Well, Ephesians 2, end of the chapter, and Ephesians 3, the beginning of that chapter, really lay the theological foundation for how we become one. Okay, so let's read together really important verses. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says, I I want you to remember this. You were outsiders. You were out. Anybody remember the uh, social dynamic of junior high? Remember feeling that? <laughs> it's a horrible time to live, isn't it? You just, you just want to survive. I remember so many times thinking, gosh, I wish I knew then what I knew now. And it's a terrible thing to, to, to be out, to feel out, to feel like you're not a part of, of a group and you can't get into that group. You don't know how, how to get into that group that you so desperately want to be a part of. You remember that feeling of being out? Remember when I, when I went to uh, live in Prague for, for several months, uh, I wanted to, to really blend into the culture. I wanted to be a part of the culture, and it was just a weird thing, thinking this should be easy, right? Because I have European descent in me. I should, I should blend in. But the, the Czechs always knew that I wasn't Czech. I'm like, why is that? Well, okay, it's my clothes. So, you know, the longer I lived there, I bought more clothes from Czech stores. So I began looking a little bit more Czech, trying to pick up, pick up on the cultural clues. And I remember one day, somebody walked up to me on the street and they asked me a question in Czech. I was like, awesome, I'm in. Except for the fact that I don't know what you just said. <laughs> right? I don't, I don't even know the language. I'm not really in. I, and I'm not going to ever really be in. I'm, I'm outside. And Paul says, remember, Gentiles, you were out. Why? Well, most importantly, he says, because you didn't have a Christ. You didn't have a Messiah. You didn't, you didn't have someone that you could hope in to set everything right. Who would set your personal relationships right and, and the relationships within your community and state to state, nation to nation. You didn't have a Messiah. And you didn't have these covenants of promise. That is the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the new covenant, which promised that God will set all things right through Messiah. So you didn't have any of that. And the Jewish people around you, they knew about it, but they didn't want to share it with you. So they hated you. So I want you to remember in a church that is becoming increasingly Gentile, that started entirely Jew, that you once had nothing. You once had nothing and God rescued you from that. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, 
so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who were near, for through him we both have our access in one spirit through the Father. Paul says, we once were outsiders, but now we are, in fact, reconciled. And the key phrase here in this paragraph is this, he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, right? In in biblical terms, peace means on the one hand, the, the cessation of hostilities, but it also means the presence of blessing. In Hebrew, it's shalom. It's the fullness of God's blessings, right? So God puts an end to hostilities and he secures the fullness of blessings. How does he do it? Well, through Jesus Christ. And so Paul's going to talk about reconciliation. He's going to talk about bringing parties back together. And he's going to discuss two forms of reconciliation. The first, in terms of sequence and priority, is vertical reconciliation. That is, men and women being reconciled back to God. Men and women being reconciled Back to God. Read with me verse 16. It says that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. Now this is what we talked about last week. There is a barrier between us and God. The barrier is created by our sin. And what Jesus did on the cross of Christ is he destroyed that barrier. He rendered it null and void. So because of the blood of Jesus Christ, there is no longer a barrier between us and God. The moment that we believe that barrier is removed and we have fellowship with God, that's vertical reconciliation. But you'll notice, normally when we think of reconciliation, we think of two parties moving back toward one another. But our reconciliation to God is us being brought back to God. God doesn't need to move. But there's nothing in God that needs to change. We need to change. We need to be brought back. So as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Now, all of these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, right? God brought us back to himself. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for each and every one of us individually, there must come a moment in time where we realize we're alienated, we're estranged, we're separated from God, and it's our fault. And that in Jesus Christ, that that estrangement can be solved, that barrier can be removed, and all that we have to do is believe. And it's true for absolutely each and every one of us. It doesn't matter if you are Jew or non-Jew or you're male or female or if you're old or young or Republican or Democrat or rich or poor. Every person is reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and that's the only way. And that's first and that's foremost. So Paul says, first, there is a vertical reconciliation of man to God. But then second, there's a horizontal reconciliation of men to one another. Read with me chapter 2. Verse 14, it says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, that is, the enmity. Now what I want you to notice is this. God doesn't simply try to reconcile people to one another. What he does is he reconciles people to himself. And once people have been reconciled to himself, they discover they can be reconciled to one another. Let me say it differently. Apart from the cross of Christ, you cannot reconcile people to one another. Right? So your best activities, politically or socially, cannot, for any 
sequence of time, for any durability, for anything lasting, cannot solve the problem of alienation between people and estrangement and racism and conflict and war. Apart from Christ, all of your solutions will be short-lived. Because the only thing that, that, that reconciles us in an enduring way is we under, when we understand, in fact, that we are one. Right? We are one humanity. We share the image of God, every single one of us made in the image of God. Again, it doesn't matter male or female, old or young, black or white, Asian, Hispanic, doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We all equally share in the image of God. We all equally share in the fact that the image of God in us is broken. And that's the cause of our conflict. And when we acknowledge that you're, you're, you're in the image of God and I'm in the image of God and the image of God is broken in you, the image of God is broken in me, but we also share together one Savior, then we can come together because we come together in Christ. Right? We are reconciled to God one way, through the cross of Christ. We are reconciled to one another one way, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that means the gospel is the only hope for the world. And when the gospel, that's it. The gospel is the only hope for the world. So notice, Paul says this. This is how Jesus did it. it says he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. What's he talking about? He's talking about the law, or more specifically, the Jewish misinterpretation and misapplication of the law. Because the Jews used the law to create separation between themselves and the Gentiles. There's a great visual illustration of this. Uh, This is an inscription. It's now housed in uh, the Archaeological Museum in Istanbul, but it was discovered in Jerusalem in a pile of rubble, and it came from the Temple Mount. When Herod rebuilt the temple, eventually there was a, a wall that was put up a stone wall, and it separated, literally, Jews from Gentiles. Gentiles had to stay out. Jews could come in. And this inscription was embedded in the wall, and this is how it read. No intruder, that is, a non-Jew, is allowed in the courtyard and within the wall surrounding the temple. Whoever enters will invite death for himself. If you're a Gentile, don't come in, or we will kill you. So imagine this. In Jerusalem, on the highest hill in the city, there is this beautiful temple. And this temple, it just, it just screams out visually, this is where God dwells. Keep out. <laughs> That's not very inviting, is it? This is where God dwells. Stay away. This is where God dwells, but if you try to get close, we will kill you. But the Jews used the law as a barrier to keep people out. Paul says, in Jesus Christ, the barrier of the dividing wall, that misinterpretation, misapplication of the wall, or of the law has been torn down. So the question is this: Why did the Jews use the law this way? Fear and pride. Fear and pride. And you know, you can understand their fear in a sense, right? All of their history, they've been oppressed. Right now, they're under Roman rule. The Romans take their property, take their freedoms. They've been oppressed. There's, 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 there's a fear in them. There's also a fear not just of being destroyed by other nations. There's a fear of defilement. It's a fascinating interaction in uh, the book of Acts. Remember, Peter was sent by the Holy Spirit to Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman soldier. From a Jewish perspective, this is really almost this is like the worst of the worst. God's Spirit says, go. Go tell this Roman soldier and all of these Roman people about 
the cross of Jesus Christ. So this is how Peter starts the conversation. He says, Peter said to them, the Romans, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew like me to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. That's a great way to start the conversation, right? He says, you do realize that if I come into your home, if I touch you, if I shake your hand, if I eat your food, my God won't like me anymore. Would you like to know about him? <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how Peter starts the conversation. Right? What you see early in the book of Acts is, is the church is all Jewish and God's spirit has to break down their prejudices. He has to break down their misconceptions about the nature of this new community that God is building. And Jesus will say to his disciples, and they didn't really get it, really, no man is unclean. No person is unclean. What causes a person to un- be unclean is, in a sense, not what they put into their mouth or not whose hand they shake, but what comes out of their heart. I'm here to transform your heart. But there was, there was fear in them. Fear of destruction, fear of defilement, and there was pride. Apostle Paul would say of himself, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If anyone can trust in their race, Paul says, that's me. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. There's Jews, and then there's everybody else. And I'm really on the top of the Jewish pile as well, right? I'm an American. You're a citizen. I'm male. I'm white. I'm an Aggie. And then there's all the rest of you. Yeah, you, you laugh, but are you feeling it? That's what, that's what, Paul, that's what Paul's saying. And that was our attitude, fear and pride. And so we use the law to keep people out. But remember, that was not God's design. Why did God choose the Jews? chose the Jews so that they could be a blessing to all the nations. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy says, you know why I bestowed all my love upon you and why I gave you all of these wonderful blessings? It wasn't because you were a lot bigger than other nations or you're the best. or It's actually you were the smallest and the weakest. In fact, remember Abraham was taken out of Ur of the Chaldeans as a pagan idolater. One old man said, I'm going to start over. This has really proved my power when I can start with somebody like you. And he said this to him. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And I will bless you and I'll make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? Salvation was not for the Jews. Salvation was from the Jews for all the nations. In the book of Zechariah, the Lord would say, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and they will become my people. So I'm going to make for myself a people who will be an entire kingdom of priests. Right? The, the, the Levitical priesthood, they're going to take care of things internally for your worship. But all of you, I don't care what tribe you're from, I want you to be this, this kingdom, this kingdom of a priesthood that serve as mediators of my blessing to mankind. But instead, they were like the ultimate hoarders and they kept all of these blessings for themselves and they didn't pass on the information and they didn't make an invitation. They didn't say to anybody, come in and be part of the family. Instead, they said, stay out or we will have to kill you. This is where God dwells. And you're not invited. But that was not God's intention. God's intention is that they would be salt and light. They would be this beautiful city shining on a hill that God would see the way that they interacted with one another and the way that they related to him and they would be drawn to God through him. And so Paul says what Jesus Christ has done through the cross is he has rendered that barrier inoperative. People don't have to come to God through the law. It's not about how you perform, but have you believed in Jesus Christ? And it doesn't matter if you're male or female or black or white or Asian, Hispanic, old or young. It doesn't matter. 
Everyone is reconciled to God in exactly the same way. And having been reconciled to God, now you can be reconciled to one another. How is it possible? Two things. First, because the cross destroys our pride. The cross crushes our pride. Listen to Romans chapter 3. Paul, a Jew, says, What then? Are we, the Jews, better than the non-Jews? This is not at all. We have already charged, we've already made the point, the Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Who does that include? All of you. Oh, and me. There's none righteous. There's not even one. Right, so Paul would, he would write to the Corinthian believers. Remember, they, there was so much division in that church and they were trying to always one-up each other. And, and he would say to them, say, you do remember that when God called you, there were not many of you who were mighty or noble or rich or powerful. In fact, God really prefers to choose uh, foolish people, ignorant people, base people, because then he gets all of the glory. So nobody gets to boast only unless you boast in the Lord. And then he'd go on a few verses later and he'd say, I want to know who regards you as superior? And what do you have that you didn't receive? But if you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, everything that you have that's good in your life is a gift from God. So just get on your knees and say thanks. See, the cross levels us. Right? No, no room for pride. And I would argue as well, no place for fear. What do, what do we have to fear? If we are secure in our relationship with Jesus Christ, we've got nothing. Now, I, one of the things I love about the Gospels is how fearless Jesus is. Right? He, he's going to go anywhere he wants. He's going to say what he wants. He's going to interact with any people that he wants. He, he doesn't care, really, if they think badly of him. Right? He just, man, he is doing his thing. I just love that fearlessness about him. Right? So in his culture, not appropriate for a man to talk to a woman, and certainly not a Samaritan woman. He just sits down on the well and starts the conversation. Man, and everybody feels uncomfortable, except Jesus. It's inappropriate for a man to touch or be touched by a woman, but he allows prostitute to touch him. There's a segment of society, it's, it's unclean because they're diseased and they have to live on the outskirts. They're called lepers. They have to walk through a crowd and call, unclean, unclean, so no one gets near them. And Jesus walks up and says, what can I do for you? And touches them. Because Jesus realized there's, there's nothing that could defile him. Says, Look, I'm I'm holy. I mean, really, really holy. Because all of my life is rightly related to God. There's nothing that you can do to defile me, so I'm free to love you. How do you need to be loved? He didn't fear destruction. He would say to Pilate, as Pilate's about to crucify him, and Pilate's pronouncing his authority over Jesus, he says, you don't understand how the world works. You have no authority over me, except what God has granted. If God said it's time for me to go to the cross, I will. Because God said so. You're just a tool. No fear. Right? The cross destroys pride. The cross destroys fear. The cross breaks down that barrier of separation. We all come through Jesus. And there's no other way that we can come. I love this quote by Oswald Chambers. He said, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. In Christ, we are now reconciled. Reconciled to God, consequently reconciled to one another. And so Paul will say this, now we are one. And now we're one. Not because our goal was human reconciliation. Our cause is Christ, right? We, when we pursued Christ and Christ chased us down and we were reconciled to him, then we experienced the fact that we are 
one in Jesus Christ. Read with me verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are of God's home or God's household. You are now of God's family. Again, he says, you are no longer, but now you are. You had no citizenship. You had no rights. You had no privileges. You had no Messiah, but now you are. You were outsiders, but now you are insiders, and you are insiders together. And I want you to grasp one point. If you, get, if you take away nothing else this morning, it's this. The absolute most important thing about you is that you're a member of God's family. The absolute most important thing about you is your relationship to God and to his family, and consequently, your relationships to one another. That, to one another. That, that's the most important thing about you. That's the, that's the core. That's the root of your identity. You are in Christ. In Christ. That's one of Paul's absolute favorite phrases. He says, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, it transforms everything about you. That means that, that your, your biology, your, your race, your, your nationality, your education, your wealth, those aren't the most important things about you. Your, your job, your marital status, those are not the most important things about you. The most important thing about you is your identity in Jesus Christ. All right, we all have these, uh, in a sense, identity cards, right? This is what we play when people are interacting with us. And we say, this is, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm white. I'm a male. I'm a U.S. citizen of Swedish descent. I am a father. Uh, I'm also a husband. There's my engagement picture. Um, I, I will remove that from the slides before they're posted on the internet. These are my identity markers. None of them are as important as my identity in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's who I am. Now, what that means for us practically is this. I'm going to start by speaking to uh, the majority in this room. Because there's a certain power that comes from being in the majority, right? So, if you are a, a white Christian you know that you have more in common with a black Christian than with a white non-Christian. Tracking with me on that? Right, if you're a white Christian, you have more in common with a black Christian than with a white non-Christian. Because what's most important about you is not your race or your citizenship, but your identity in Jesus Christ. If you are a Republican, you have more in common with a Christian Democrat than with a non-Christian Republican. I'm not saying you won't have plenty in common with people who are your same race or your same political affiliation or whatever, but what I'm saying is those pale in comparison to the number one thing that's most important about you, and that is your identity in Jesus Christ. Now, if you are an Aggie, you have more in common with a Christian Longhorn than a non-Christian Aggie. You you should have actually whooped and not hissed, or you're missing the theological... (laughs) point of the illustration somehow. Let's just back up. Okay. If you're an Aggie and you're a Christian, you have more in common with a Longhorn, a T-Sip, who's also a Christian. Thank you. Then a non-Christian Aggie. I'm not saying we, yeah, we sing the same songs and we know the same yells, whatever, but sorry, but so what? I mean, it's a superficial association compared to our identity in Jesus Christ, men and women. 
There's nothing more important about you than your identity with Jesus Christ. You're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Consequently, you have this new family that you didn't have before. You're, you're not out, you're in. You're not out, you're in. And that's what makes us one. You know, my, I, some of my best times in, in ministries when I was working in this, the international church in Prague, because at that time, we were the only international church. And so uh, if, you, if you spoke English and wanted to worship in English, then everybody in that city came to us. And so if it was your first language or your second language or your third language and you wanted to worship in English, you came. So we had people literally from every continent and we had every theological persuasion, right? We had conservative Presbyterians and we had uh, Anglicans and we had uh, Methodists. And that's just on my board. That's just, just on my board. We had, we had Pentecostals from, from Indonesia. And I mean, we, just, we, had, we had everything. And, you know, we had this moment where we sat in there and said, what is it that unifies us? Literally, we had to have, let's have our theological moment. What is it that unifies us? Well, we, we shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believed in that. We believed that we were all made in the image of God, and that image had been, had been marred and tarnished by the fall, and that the only hope for reconciliation to God was through Jesus Christ. And we looked around and realized all of a sudden, well, we are one, because we're one in Jesus Christ. It was awesome. It was a wonderful moment. See, that's, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you are, in fact, a new humanity ruled by the peace of God. Notice what he says here. Verse uh, 15, he says, he, he abolished or he rendered inoperative in his flesh the, the law of commandments that was used as a barrier so that in himself he might create the two into one new man or one new humanity, thus establishing peace, right? Same word, my translation says make, but it's create. He created humanity the first time and we screwed it up. And so he recreated humanity into a new humanity so that people would see the way that we interact inside the church and they'd say, that's what men and women should be like. Not, Not ignoring the distinctions and the differences, but instead embracing them. Saying, wow, God has made this beautiful mosaic into one picture, and it is Christ. Right? Our cause was not unity. Our cause was Christ. As we came together around Christ, this new humanity recreated became one. And it's beautiful. Right? It's beautiful. Second, he says, we are, in fact, a new temple where God dwells. Verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a temple of God in the spirit. Notice how, how he, he, he shifts the metaphor. He says, uh, you're God's household, you're God's home, you're God's family, you're God's building. You're actually a specific kind of building. You're a temple. You know what a temple is? Temple's where God dwells. So when each of you, filled by the Holy Spirit, is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving one another as you love yourself, people look in and they go, oh, that's what God is like, right? So we reconstruct this new temple, and instead of saying, keep out, it says, come in, Right? And it's not a building, it's, it's humanity. It's, it's men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we're told from John's vision, they're standing around the throne and they're worshiping and they're casting their crowns. And what are they saying? They're saying, worthy are you, you're, you're our cause, Jesus. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. And the whole crowd goes, 
Can we sing that again? They go, okay, let's do another verse of that. Worthy are you to receive power and glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Can we sing that again? Yeah, we got lots of time, lots of eternity. Come on, let's sing it again. And they sing it over and over and over again. And they are one because of Christ. Paul makes this really interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I don't want you to give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church. You see what he's saying? He's saying before Jesus Christ, there were two groups of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. Now there's three. Now there's Jews and there's Gentiles and there's the church. A new humanity, a new temple, a place where God dwells. So people look at this temple and they go, oh, that's beautiful. Can I come in? Please, please do. You're welcome. That's God's design for the church. And nothing can imitate it, men and women. There are no substitutes for the beauty of the church. So how do we apply this? Let me give you a couple of ideas. The first is this. Identify with Jesus. Identify with Jesus. Now, it has been said that um, good preaching will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So I'm going to try to afflict you for just a second. You have a lot of uh, cards in your deck right, by which you identify yourself. And some of those are really, really, really important to you. They're so important, in fact, that a lot of times you don't, you don't actually get around to playing the Jesus Christ card. I'm identified with Christ. And it may be your education. It may be your race. It may be your possessions or your wealth. It may be a wide variety of things, cards that you go, you know, this is really what's most important about me. And that's what you lead with. You're always leading with that. You know what? And that's actually, that's sin. And I want to challenge you to move those cards to the bottom of the deck. It's not that they're completely and utterly irrelevant, but they're just, they're just so much less important. And it may be that you never actually get around to identifying yourself with Christ. So where you live in your home or in your neighborhood or your place of work, people don't actually know what's most important about you. They don't know that you've identified with Christ. And I want to challenge you to play that card first. So maybe God's Spirit is saying to you, you just need to put those cards a little lower in the deck. Or maybe you hold up those cards and you allow those cards to be the thing uh, that you use to look down upon other people. And that's sin. Because we share humanity. Made in the image of God. Broken image, but your, your, the image is broken in you and it's broken in me in exactly the same way. There's nothing in me that gives me the right to look down upon another human being. Everything that I have is a gift from God. And it may be that you're using those cards to look down upon others. And you need to not just put them in the bottom of the deck, but you need to stop using them to have a condescending attitude toward others. So I want to challenge you. First, identify with Jesus. Second, initiate with others. Specifically, go after making relationships with people who are a lot different from you. Uh, I love my my friend Chris Merrill. He says, be fascinated with other people, right? Learn their story, get their perspective, ask questions, ask about their history and their experience and their culture, right? Because really that's the the nature of the grace of God. We're broken, we're separated, and God didn't kick back and go, well, I hope they figured this out. (laughs) Grace means that God initiated with us. God chased us down when we're broken, sinful, fallen people, God took the initiative. God didn't kick back and so say, you know, I'm, I'm really more of an introverted God. I don't care. I don't care if you're an introvert or an extrovert. I'm, what I'm talking about is, is taking the initiative, pursuing people because you've been entrusted with the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a privilege. It's a responsibility. It's a debt 
that we owe to others. So I want to challenge you to initiate. And then, third, extend the invitation. Extend the invitation. If you, if you really believe in your tribe, so to speak, then you, you want people to be a part of that tribe. Remember when you really, really believe it. If you're an Aggie, you go, man, this is the greatest school ever. And you meet a junior or senior in high school and you go, man, you, you should really, you should come to A&M. But I don't know, you might not be able to get in because we're really exclusive. Right? This is such a, a, an elite club. Right? But, you, but you believe in your tribe. right? So you proselytize towards your tribe. It's true. Now, I'm going to say something that's like blasphemy in Texas, but uh, football's not my favorite sport. And if you need to hiss at that, that's fine. It doesn't hurt my feelings. My favorite sport is, uh, I love hockey. I grew up playing hockey. Thank you. We got one back there. I love it. It's such a great sport. And so when I run into a, a kid who's interested in hockey, I'm, my heart just leaps. I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. How can I help you love hockey more? I mean, I, you know, I want him to be part of my, my little tribe of hockey players, it's a small tribe, especially in Texas. But if you believe in your tribe, you want people to be part of your tribe. And so you invite them in. If we believe that what we have and what we can become together in the church is really unparalleled, there's nothing like it, we're going to invite people and say, please come. But that's really going to be the focus of what we talk about next week, right? So chapter two, Paul lays this theological foundation through the cross of Christ for reconciliation. And then he talks about his ministry, his stewardship, his debt, his obligation, and how he works out that ministry. So I want to leave you kind of anticipating next week with Second uh, Corinthians chapter five. Paul says, God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul says, you want to know what my ministry is? I go around and I just beg people, please be reconciled to God. Please join our family. Please be a part of our tribe. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in these people and I want you to be a part of it. Church, that's our calling. We love one another. We love one another. And we serve one another. And we forgive one another. And we embrace all of those things that within us are, are different in our backgrounds. We, we celebrate those things. And as we do that, we create this, this new humanity. It's a recreated humanity that's beautiful in the sight of the world. And they say, you know, I need that. I want to be part of that. I don't want to be outside. I want to be in. And we welcome them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have revealed truth to us. I thank you that you have reconciled us through Jesus Christ and that you've committed to us this privilege of reconciling others to you. Not, not to us, but to you. And I pray, Father, for each of us, if, if maybe there's a relationship even in our own lives that needs reconciliation, that we pursue that in the name of Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would become people who love and forgive and serve. I pray, Father, that our church And the churches in this community, Antioch and Living Hope and Brazos Fellowship, Lily of the Valley, New Life Baptist. Father, I pray that we would be one with them because we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that in our community, people's first question would not be, why are there so many different churches? But why do the churches get along so well? Father, I pray that you would make your church beautiful. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Be reconcilers this week. We'll talk again about that next week.